The issues that matter most, right here. The Drew Mariani Show. On Relevant Radio. Yeah, I can't sleep at night just knowing that this baby was tossed in a dumpster like that. I'm sorry, but who does it? That is evil. That is just... I, I don't have words for it. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Yeah, that was a soundbite from a report that ran on KOB-TV about a baby that was dumped into a dumpster. And it raises some questions. My heart goes out to any mother who finds herself in a crisis pregnancy. And I, I don't blame mothers. Uh, I, I really don't. I know they're overwhelmed by their circumstance. And my heart goes out. There are what we call safe haven laws in the country where you can take a child and you can bring him to the police department or a local hospital, emergency room. You can take him to the fire department. You can leave him there, no questions asked. A lot of states have those. We'll talk about them coming up a little later in the hour. This story kind of sparked that situation. You know, in the uh, time of the, the Romans, uh, there was a practice called baby exposure. And if you had a child that was born with a malady, a you know, malformation, a defect, whatever, you didn't want the child anymore. Uh, people would just take it and they'd go and they'd lay it in the street and the baby would die of exposure. Um, we've come a long way since then. Um, and uh, I pray to God one day life, regardless of the challenges that face that child, will be protected. You know, And, and that's coming. That is certainly coming. I'm confident of that. I think you and I are, are going to see it personally. I really do. Anyway, it's good to be with you. I'm Drew Merrick for your time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for allowing us to be part of your afternoon here at Relevant. The um, There's some big news. I'm going to get into it a little bit later because I think it des- deserves a little more conversation. Uh, the Supreme Court has ruled on these mandates, and it may be a- impacting you uh, in terms of where you work and the decisions that you have to make about your future and your family. I'll tell you how the court ruled. It was a split decision. I'll uh, bring you up to speed on the latest on that. And then uh, a little bit later, too, a very uh, intriguing story. And I've been following what's happening uh, with new technology over in China, right? And and China has uh, not only the most surveilled society, but they have cameras everywhere. But they have a system called a social credit scoring system where you are evaluated on how you conduct yourself. You know, do you go to the liquor store too much or, you know, are you buying, you know, diapers for your kids? You know, have you gotten traffic tickets? What's your credit like? How much debt do you have? And you come up with a credit score and it can affect everything from, um, <laughs> You know, uh, not only how much money you can borrow, but whether or not you can leave the country, whether or not you can travel. Well, why am I talking about that? There is an argument right now. There, there's a, a case at, and we'll talk to Dr. Ann Kavukian about this. Uh, it was There was an article in the American Thinker, and we'll get it up for you a little bit later in the show today, about how vaccine programs really could be a means of pushing uh, for vaccine passports. It'll be the first step in creating a digital ID. And then that digital ID will be a means of ultimately being able to go ahead and uh, create here in this country or in any other country, the Chinese social credit system, kind of a model for that or modeled after that. Now, again, I don't want to be a conspiracist. I pray to God that nothing like that happens, but there's a strong argument for what we are seeing. I'll, I'll throw it out to you. We'll talk about it. We'll speak to an expert about privacy and and ultimately what you can do. So we got a lot coming up in today's show. As I said, oh, in a chaplet too. We'll pray that in about an hour or so. That's kind of the highlight of 
what I do here. Looking forward to that. Hey, the Labor Department this morning released new numbers about inflation. Uh, I had mentioned the other day to you, or at least earlier in the week, that they reported consumer prices rose about 7% over last year. And the biggest annual rise uh, we've seen in, what, four decades, 42 years to be exact. And if you thought that was bad, and gosh, I hate to start with this, but it's about to get a little bit worse. Uh, new numbers show that the producer price index, that's the amount that manufacturers charge for their products, it shot up almost 10%, 9.7%, and that's a record. That is a record. Unfortunately for the Biden administration, no way to gloss over that. You know, and I sit back and I look at the administration and I look at where we were as an economy a couple of years ago and where we are now, it seems like every step that they have taken, uh, and I don't want to be too political, but it has been an ill step. You know, we see what's happening with the economy. We've seen how they're dealing with COVID. We're seeing how they're dealing with mandates, whole litany of things. I'm thinking, when are we going to hit the border, Afghanistan? I mean, I can go through a whole litany of things that I personally uh, have issues with and I think could have been handled uh, better. So a couple more years with this administration. Let's really pray for, for the leadership because, look, we're all in the same boat together, right? Whether you're Democrat or Republican, uh, we're all in it together. <laughs> we're, we're in that great ship called the United States of America. And, we got to write this course. You know, there's been a lot of uh, showboating on Capitol Hill about about the filibuster with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer trying to get get rid of it, and now President Biden, after years of having supported the filibuster in the Senate, he's now saying he wants to suspend it. Senate can pass two major voting bills. And, you know, it just and again, I want to be charitable. I, I I don't understand the mindset. How do you go from being so eloquent and passionate about supporting this to a complete about face you know is it is there a change in your cognitive abilities or change in your thought period is there somebody else driving this uh, nothing's going to happen here senator kirsten cinema of arizona she just about put an end to all of it by giving a speech on the floor saying hey she said and i'll quote her she says this quote this week's harried discussions about senate rules are but a poor substitute for what i believe could have and should have been a thoughtful public debate at any time over the past year. In other words, what she's saying is that filibuster is going to stay in place. So what's next? I don't know. We'll see. This is a big year. Midterms are going to be here before you know it. And we're going to see some changes. We'll see what happens. Um, speaking of you know liberal thought, Oregon, right? You generally think of that state as a bastion of liberalism. Uh, apparently, there's a town there. It's called Brookings. And they didn't get that memo. The Beckett Law Firm has awarded this town its annual Ebenezer Award. I don't know if you've ever heard of this award. I kind of like it. It's named after Ebenezer Scrooge in, in Dickens, right? A Christmas Carol. You're familiar with that. Um, because the city council told an Episcopal church they couldn't feed the homeless more than two times a week. So St. Timothy's had, had been in the habit of feeding these uh, the homeless people there about four times a week. But... You know, nearby residents complained about, about safety issues, so the council cut the number of days that they could feed those who had no home, those who were hungry, those who were on the street. And the pastor told Beckett, look, cutting our ability to help these people doesn't solve the problem. What it does, and I think this is a really good point, it violates the church's constitutional right to freely exercise their religion. And I've been talking to you about this, and I've been saying, hey, these stories pop up. I'm going to continue to put them before you. I'm going to show you where there's attack on church, where there is vandalism, 
where there's erosion of religious liberty, where we see these things begin to manifest. Uh, here's what Father Bernie Lindley of St. Thomas's or St. Timothy's Episcopal Church had to say about the case. Uh, feeding the homeless more than twice a week. He said this on a local radio ne- uh, station there, KFUG. To say that we have a strong case is uh, an understatement. It's 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 a slam dunk deal. We there is no question that uh, a federal judge is going to uphold our right to freely exercise religion. It's right there in the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States. Just like you said, it's right in the same sentence with freedom of speech. And uh, we're we're uh, we're going to. Um, we're going to protect our constitutional right to to continue to uh, to practice our faith. They want to somehow or another limit the amount of visits they make to the church, I suppose. And their thought is, is the best way to do that is to uh, try to come up with uh, only two days a week that we would feed people under the assumption that that would create less you know, foot traffic. Because we're not really talking about cars so much. We're talking about people who are, you know, living in the rough, and they're coming to the church to uh, to get a warm meal. So I, I think that's the theory: is that uh, they want to slow down the impact on the neighborhood. And uh, I, I would contend that there's better ways to do that. Yeah, no doubt about it. My heart goes out to the homeless. So often they are forgotten; they're overlooked. Um, I don't know how you feel. You might be afraid of them. You walk to the other side of the. The street. A lot of these people are on the streets for a couple reasons. One could be mental illness. Two, you might take it for granted, but you know you can be just a few paychecks away um, from from homelessness, being kicked out of your apartment or out of your home, not having a place to go. There's some people who have no family, no support structure. They end up on the street. And the other is drugs. And this is a real problem. Uh, we're facing an epidemic in the country right now. I'm sure your family has been touched. Or somebody you know has been touched by by drugs. And I, I think a lot of people are driven to the street because drugs lead you to three places. They lead you either to prison, to the street, or to the grave. And, and I really believe that. And a lot of these homeless people are there because they're addicted. And they need help. They need God's love. They need his mercy. They need you to be God's hands. And I think if you have an opportunity to help somebody, take it. You know, you never know when you're going to encounter Christ. And, and we need to get a grip on this fentanyl problem. I've been reporting on this, filling you in on not only fentanyl, but car fentanyl and how much how much of this poison is coming across our southern border. The chemicals are made in China. The cartels of Mexico are smuggling them across the border. And 100,000 Americans have already died as a result of it. And if you're not familiar with that, fentanyl is a, uh, is a synthetic opioid. Uh, it's more addictive than, than things like Oxycontin. And... Um, it can be used on its own, but it's also laced with a lot of other drugs. And even the tiniest amount can cause an immediate addiction or an overdose. And uh, there's a, there was a report coming out of Alatea, um, new data uh, that was accumulated by the nonprofit Families Against Fentanyl. And they found that illicit drugs, you know, this, this drug in particular, is killing more adults than COVID, more adults than car accidents more deaths than suicide in the last two years. Combine those things, COVID, car accidents, suicide in the last two years. The organization is calling the drug to be classified as a weapon of mass destruction. And that, if they did that, would allow more funding to fight the drug epidemic. We need it. Our country needs it. Families need it. The addicted need it. We need to hold China accountable, and we need to hold the cartels of Mexico accountable. We need to hold this administration accountable for our open borders. You know, I'm all about immigration. I'm all about law and order and sovereignty of our borders. 
But when fentanyl comes in, look, we're, we're dealing with a pandemic with coronavirus, taking a lot of lives. We're dealing, I think, also with an epidemic of fentanyl. And it may have started even earlier, and it's affecting all classes. Hey, here's a little more from KXXV-TV. Fentanyl fatalities have nearly doubled since 2019. The CDC says the synthetic opioid is now the leading cause of death for Americans 18 to 45 years old. The fentanyl increases with on deaths, though, they really started to raise quite abruptly in around 2016. And they have just gone up and up and up and up and up until 20, 2020 and 2021. We expect also to be really, really bad. The country lost more than 37,000 people during 2020 and 41,500 people just this year between the ages of 18 and 45. Data from Families Against Fentanyl suggests one person dies from an overdose every eight and a half minutes. It's affected all classes, all races. It's disproportionate. It started out as a, a white man's drug because it was affecting the heroin market. Now it's disproportionately affecting the black community. It's still, it's killing all of us. I don't see anyone that's immune to this. Yeah, no, I, my heart goes out to anybody who has a loved one that is homeless, anyone who's got a loved one that is addicted to this, and in particular, anyone who has lost a loved one as a result of, uh, of, of a drug overdose. Um, I, I never thought of designating fentanyl as a weapon of mass destruction. I mean, today, really, as I was doing my research for the broadcast, was the first time I came across this. Um, but they based that on a 2018 seizure of 5,000 pounds of this drug. J just to give you some perspective so you can kind of get a grip on what that means, that's equivalent to about 1.2 billion lethal doses. 1.2 billion lethal doses doses. As I said, the stuff can be laced in other drugs and the tiniest amount of it can cause not only an overdose, but cause immediate addiction. I, 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 I wish them the most success. Can you imagine if somebody took poison, went to all of the water supplies of our country and they put in stuff that even the tiniest lace of it would create overdoses. What would happen? There would be a war on this. You know, it would be declared a weapon of mass destruction used against the United States. I think we're seeing it now, but it's uh, it's, it's hidden. It really is. It's hidden in a very ugly and underhanded way. So we'll see what happens. That was news to me, and I just wanted to pass that along. Hey, I, I want to talk about safe haven laws, too, just for a moment. And if you want to join me anytime, you know the number, right? It's 888 You know, being, um, being, being pregnant, and not knowing how you're going to provide for your child, uh, not knowing, um, you know, what it's going to mean for your own future um, can be a very frightening thing. And, and a lot of teen mothers often face that. They're still in high school. Maybe they're in college. They're worried about what their parents are going to think. They're, you know, all sorts of reasons. And they just don't think they can have the child. And so often they go the course of, of abortion. Uh, but there are other things that happen too. There was a girl named Alexis Avila. She's a... 18-year-old, she lives in New Mexico, and uh, on Friday, police alleged that she drove up to a dumpster, and she had a black garbage bag with her, and she tossed it in the store's parking lot, you know, trash can. Uh, well, the whole thing, of course, was captured on video. Everything is videotaped today, right? And a group passed by, or those who were driving, they heard something coming out of the dumpster. They heard a cry, and they drove up, they went over, and they pulled the bag out and they revealed 
a newborn baby boy. The umbilical cord still attached and wrapped in a bloody towel. Just to give you a perspective, it was 36 degrees out. 36 degrees. Here's a look at what they found. This comes from KOB TV. To anyone else, this video looks like a woman throwing away a bag of trash. But now we know what was inside that bag was a precious treasure. Police believe you're watching 18-year-old Alexis Avila of Hobbs throw her living newborn baby into an area dumpster. Joe Imbriali owns Riggs Outfitters in Hobbs. He says police called him Friday night with a request to view his surveillance footage. I said, what is it we are looking for? And she goes, we're looking for somebody that dumped a black garbage bag in your dumpster. And I turned around and said, please don't tell me it was a baby. The video shows who is believed to be Avila leaving the dumpster at two Friday afternoon. Six hours later, you can see three people searching through the same dumpster. They pull out a black bag and start looking through it. Seconds later, a woman reacts to what's inside and starts opening the bag. She pulls out the newborn baby, still alive, and tends to it. Once the child is wrapped up, she brings it to their truck while a man in the group is on the phone. They pull the truck away from the dumpster, and you can see police and an ambulance arrive minutes later, and paramedics take the child to a local hospital. I was in shock just to see this. Imbriali couldn't believe his eyes as he reviewed that video with police. Yeah, I can't sleep at night just knowing that this baby was tossed in a dumpster like that. I'm sorry, but who does it? That is evil. That is just, I, I don't have words for it. Yeah, again, I don't know if it's evil. I understand the man's uh, frustration and, and, and angst over the whole thing, but I think women in these situations don't want to do that. They feel they have no alternative. I heard, heard a story last week. Um, there was a child, I think in Alaska, that somebody found roadside. I mean, it was freezing cold uh, out, and they left a note on the child saying, my mom doesn't want to do this, but they, my mom and my my grandparents can't afford to feed me. And they found that baby, and it, it survived. Uh, just a follow-up to the story, the police quickly located uh, Miss uh, Avila, and they arrested her. They charged her with attempted murder, and the father of the child apparently has nothing to do with Alexis because her mother has ordered him to stay away, and, and he was apparently abusive toward her last year so the whole situation's kind of a mess but but the whole tragedy it, it could have easily been avoided i mean new mexico has a safe haven law right it allows mothers to drop off a child within 90 days within three months of birth at a hospital or a police station or a fire station you can do it without any kind of legal repercussions at all in fact i think all 50 states right now have some version of this law and i just want to put this on your radar heather burner uh, she heads up the national safe haven alliance which you can find at nationalsafehavenalliance.org. She joins us today for some insight on this story and uh, for a law that I don't know if a lot of people may be aware of. Good to have you with me today, Heather. Good afternoon. Thank you, sir. Glad to be here. So let's talk about safe havens for a moment. This idea of a safe haven for babies, um, it's not new. It's actually pretty old. Um, in fact, wasn't it around even during the Middle Ages? It goes back centuries. Yeah, they used to have what was called wheels, and they would actually put the baby in the wheel, and the wheel would turn into a church or, or the location, you know, on the inside where someone would then grab the baby. 
So, yes, it's not new, although in the U.S., um, it's about 20 years. The law has been around for about 20 years in almost all the states. Wow. So uh, when did this first come into to law here in the states, and, and how often is it practiced? I don't know if an 17-year-old girl, 15-year-old girl, or most women know that if they're pregnant, they can actually have this child and, and, and turn it over, no questions asked. When did it come into to law, and, and how, how well known is it? So 1999 was when the first safe haven law was passed in Texas. And then from that point, moving forward, advocates just went across the country, you know, making connections to pass legislation in those states. So, like I said, all the states and now Guam all have safe haven laws. Um, The problem there, though, is that it was a great deed done, but many of the states did not follow up with awareness efforts, outreach efforts, educational efforts. So you passed a law that not many people know about. So when we talk about this young woman in New Mexico, it's it's very likely she has never heard of that law. And, you know, when we we operate a 24-hour hotline, which is one of the most critical pieces of what we do, we answer calls all across the country. What I have found is that many times these women or parents, fathers too, are in a crisis that can be attended to. So when when they call us, we are able to usually, um, how can we address this crisis? How can we prevent this type of tragedy? There are so many options, you know, from parenting, adoption, safe haven, that we can actually provide the connection and resources to to prevent such a tragedy. Because yeah. this, this young woman, I've it's, never had a woman not love her baby. So tell me about the situation. What do you know about it and what happened? Why, why did she do this? What was her mo- motive or so, rationale? I, I don't think know, she's I, evil. I, I think she's in a really bad way and thought this was her only option. Mm-hmm. Bad choice, but but uh, your thoughts. So I agree. I think that a lot of the times when they keep pregnancies a secret, when the the a moment arises that the baby comes into this world, they just have no coping mechanisms to deal with that. And we've seen what's called pregnancy denial syndrome in many, many women. Um, in my history, I've been doing this for 12 years, and I would say 80% of the calls that I get, women have delivered at home or are delivering at a hospital but didn't know they were pregnant. And, and what that pregnancy denial syndrome is, is they really refuse to acknowledge their body changing or, or the fact that they are pregnant because of a crisis, because may, maybe they've been trafficked or abused. Um, I had a woman that her husband had committed suicide and she just refused to acknowledge that she was pregnant until the baby came. Oh. Yeah, yeah, I'm just curious, since this law came into effect in 99, um, how many babies have been taken to safe havens, police departments or emergency rooms or fire, uh, fire departments? How many lives have been saved? Yeah, Four, oh, over 4,450 babies have been saved since that time. And that, that's probably a modest number because yeah. many of the calls we get, the babies actually, um, the parents get help for parenting and we give them a baby shower and we, we really help them get on their feet or they, they awesome. choose adoption. And these numbers don't really capture those outcomes. So, but 4,450 babies. Yeah, I was going to say it sounds low, but you know what? That's 450 plus babies uh, that are alive today that are going to mm-hmm. make a difference. And that's fantastic. Let's grab a call or two. We only have a few moments. Marie's listening in San Diego, and she's got a question for you, Heather. Marie, hi. You're on the air with uh, Heather Burner. Hi. Um, you know, I I just have, I'm going to play devil's advocate. I'm just going to say, what is the big deal? Um, of course, I am personally 
pro-life. I am pro-baby, et cetera. I'm a labor and delivery nurse, et cetera. But I'm just thinking hours before this baby was born, no one would have cared. This wouldn't have been right. made the news. It would have right. been an abortion. It would have been legal. And all of a sudden, the baby's born, and now everyone's appalled that she's throwing a baby in yep. a bag in, in the trash can. You know, and I was at, the, I was so at a Freedom Revival here in San Diego on Sunday or Saturday, and I was posting about, you know, medical choice and medical freedom, et cetera. Mm. And someone, someone got on the tangent of abortion and I'm like, Hey, you know, abortion is murder. And, and she goes, no, abortion is a choice. And I'm like, what if your baby was, you know, your grandchild was aborted hours before it was born? Would you be for that too? So again, devil's advocate, everyone's appalled and they should be, but really this is a throwaway society. You're so so right about that, Marie. Thank you so much for your call. I think you brought up a great point. It's true. Uh, you know, if that would have happened two weeks before she gave birth to it, you know, she could have went and legally terminated the child, and that would have been it. And she would have been applauded for her right to exercise her so-called choice. But she has the child, and suddenly it's looked at in a totally uh, different perspective. I was sharing a story the other day, and I forget what's – I think it was uh, it was uh, New Jersey – um, they're allowing abortion now right up to the moment of, of birth. I mean, you talk about macabre. So, I mean, there is this disconnect, societally speaking, Heather. I'd love your take on that. I mean, how can we look at life in the womb one way and hours later look at it a different way? Yeah, I think that's a it's a difficult subject to tackle. I think that when we acknowledge life for what it is, then we would stop stop seeing it two different ways. And so we know that these women are in crisis, and, and when they come to us, they, they are realizing at that point that they are having a baby. And many of them have made choices to carry that baby to term, whether we understand why they throw the child away or not. I can tell you that they don't, they don't want to do these things. That, that 18-year-old, I can't, I can't imagine, at least the mothers that I've talked to, they don't have the desire to kill or hurt a baby, but they don't have, feel they have any other options, and they're afraid. So when we acknowledge and tackle the fear, we, we give support, we give resources, we give love, we give hope. We are able to overcome a lot of these obstacles that they are facing. I told you, let's sneak one last call in here, and uh, now we're getting close to uh, our break. Sue in St. Paul, Minnesota, good afternoon. Hi, Sue, Drew, right thanks for taking Hi. my call. You're welcome. I just wanted to um, throw out there, I don't know how many people are familiar with the Safe Haven baby boxes, um, but these are, um, it, they sound kind of bizarre at first and almost a little inhumane, but they're not. Um, it's they can be installed in like um, fire departments, different places, and it's literally a, a box that you women or parents can place their baby in. Right. Um, when the box is activated, um, it sounds alarms for ambulance and all that kind of stuff, and they're popping up all over the country and are being utilized by people. There's uh, um, awesome. they're actually accepting donations to have one placed um, in that area in New Mexico now. And I just wow. think it's such a beautiful option. Yeah, it certainly is. Thank you, Sue. Uh, Heather, I'm sure you're familiar with that, right? I am, yeah. It is a definitely a, a good option for folks. Um, I think knowing where these locations are, and I think one important piece of this is that hospitals are a safe haven location in every state in the country. So when we are able to make sure we can give give a parent a safe place to go, anonymous place to go, we're going to save the lives of babies. Well, I want to thank you for your time. 
And if people want more information on your great efforts, check out nationalsafehavenalliance.org. That's nationalsafehavenalliance.org. And Heather Burns heads up that great organization. Keep up your good work, Heather. We need you. Okay, grateful for you Thank for you, all that sir. you're doing. Thank you got it. With Heather Burner, and uh, I've got to take a short break. When we come back, I've got an update for you. I don't know if you've heard what's happened on some of these college campuses when it comes to athletics. Wait to hear the story I'm about to tell you. Catholic Order of Foresters is proud to sponsor the Relevant Radio Studio line. For information about employment opportunities and flexible premium life insurance plans, visit relevantradio.com slash forester. Get informed and get connected. It's the Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Yeah, giving you a look at life, hopefully you're not going to find anywhere else because you know the world is getting crazier by the hour. In fact, it's gotten so crazy, a lot of people are no longer able to tell, you know, whether they're a boy or a girl. There are some very rare cases where a child, of course, is born and doctors actually can't tell what the sex is, but that's an anomaly, very rare issue gets resolved pretty quickly after child's birth. But that's not what I'm talking about here. We're talking about either young kids who are confused and need some help. Their parents should be doing that um, with either professionals or medical care. Um, talking about teenagers who are you know, all angsty about, uh, about their own gender identity and sometimes influenced by others, the click, what's happening. Uh, there are those who are being led uh, by a professional class to think that they can actually change their bodies to conform their feelings rather than changing their feelings to conform to their bodies, right? I mean, that, that's, how, that's how flipped things are. That's how confused things are. Well, you have to check this story out. The NCAA, they're having issues. There was a guy at the University of Pennsylvania, great institution, right? He was on the swim team. Um, actually thinks he's a girl and is swimming as a girl. And ever since he began to race, uh, he is just crushing all of the girls. I mean, he's, he's, it's, it's just, you know, he's unbeatable. And you can understand why. I mean, think about the upper body strength, the, the, the leg strength, you know, the, the, the arm length. Think of the ability to move through the water. Um, there was a race at uh, UPenn this weekend uh, between this guy who calls himself Leah Thomas. And there was a girl at Yale who is called uh, Isaac Hennig. And, and she's a man uh, as well, just to be honest with you. Well, Hennig beat Thomas. Hennick is allowed to compete on the women's team because she's not taking any hormones. And I know it's all very confusing. It really is, isn't it? So the guy, Leah Thomas, beats every girl uh, on, on the swim team. Anybody they come up against, he gets beat. And the only race he's beat by, by uh, the, another woman who is not really a woman, but actually a man. I mean, whoever thought, and we're talking about some prestigious universities, right? Yale, University of Pennsylvania. I heard a uh, a story about Cynthia Millen. She was a U.S. swimming official who actually resigned. I mean, people lose their jobs. They resign over this transgender issue. And here's what she had to say on Fox News. Listen. The fact is that swimming is a sport in which bodies compete against bodies. Identities do yeah. not compete against identities. And from the very beginning, when you start out as an age grouper, swimmers are divided by sex and by age group, eight and under, nine, 10, et cetera, all the way up because from the very beginning, swimming, USA Swimming recognizes that boys swim differently 
from girls. And this is just accentuated when boys and girls go through puberty. Boys will always have larger lung capacity, larger hearts, greater circulation, a bigger skeleton, and less fat. Girls go through puberty and they have a double whammy. They not only grow breasts and hips, but they have periods, and they often have a totally different center of gravity. They have to learn how to swim over again. So while Leah Thomas is a child of God, he is a biological male, who is competing against women, and no matter how much testosterone suppression drugs he takes, he will always be a biological male and have this advantage. And it's horrible. The statement for women then is, you don't matter, what you do is not important, and little girls are going to be thrown under the bus by all of this. He's going to be destroying women swimming. I, I, you know, I feel bad for, for so many of the women out there who have an opportunity to compete, and have an opportunity to win scholarships and, and uh, you know, to advance, uh, you know, to make it to the Olympics, do a lot of things. When, 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 you're, not, when you're not competing against your own gender, it's just, it's, you talk about inequity, right, and inequality. I mean, that, those are the, the buzzwords of our day, right? Everything's got to be equal. There needs to be equity, you know. But we don't have it here, right? I mean, do, do you see this being fair? I, I don't. I really don't. I, I see this as, you know, I see a great inequity taking place here. And yet, you know, we want to tolerate everything. We want to accept everything. And, and this is just so, it's, it's, it's so outside of the framework of reason because it doesn't make sense. It's not rational. I mean, your, your genetics, you know, your, your chromosomes, you know, your physiology determines your type of sex. And not just because I think that I'm a woman, I'm a woman, I'm not. God created me as a man. But my next guest is going to be joining me in a moment. He's been through this. His name's Walt Heyer. He grew up wanting to be a girl, and then he went through the transition, and he found out after several years of identifying as a woman, uh, it didn't address the pain. You know, he he went from Walt Heyer to Laura Jensen. Well, it was was his name, and um, yeah, he's a courageous man. I've met him. I've had dinner with Walt. I've I've heard him speak. Uh, he's been on the program many times. Uh, he did something that I, I thought was incredibly heroic. He transitioned back to his God-given birth uh, gender, which is male. And he's God brings good out of every situation. He's using Walt now to uh, to mentor others who are confused, uh, who have maybe bought the culture lie, who have not gotten the proper care or the help that they need, and helping them to transition back. Because those who go through this transgender uh, surgery, this reassignment surgery, the rates of their suicide uh, are through the roof. I mean, it's it's really quite tragic. I'm going to give you a website here. If you have a loved one that's struggling with this, maybe you are. Um, check out the, the, I'll give you two websites, walthire.com, hire spelled uh, H-E-Y-E-R, walthire.com. And you can also uh, check out sexchangeregret.com, sexchangeregret.com. Always good to talk with uh, Walt Heyer. Walt, thank you for being here. Thank you for what you do. Yeah, true. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Great, uh, great topic. Boy, it doesn't end. I always enjoy our conversations. I, 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 as I said, I have a lot of respect for you, uh, your wonderful books, and, and for your witness. I know you're helping a lot of people. Uh, you know, I, I just, we live in a culture today where it's all about, you know, justice and equality and equity and fairness. And, you know, everybody has to have a cookie. Everybody's got to be on the same page. And here you have a woman who thinks that she's a man beating, um, you know, beating every woman 
uh, or here's a I should say here's a, a a man who thinks he's a woman beating every woman on the team ultimately gets beat by a man in a head-to-head uh, race. Um, y- you know y- your thoughts on on this story and and all that we're seeing. I mean, how do you justify people saying that this is okay and and this should be allowed? Because just on the very surface of it, I think an average person without drilling too deep can see it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Well, you know, Drew, um, you and I both know, and and I've went through this process because I was sexually abused as a child. I was physically abused. And when you're physically and sexually abused in early childhood, you develop psychiatric and psychological disorders. And oftentimes they lead you to have some sort of dissociative disorder or some belief that you're something you're not, schizophrenia, bipolar, whatever it is. And the fact of the matter is, I, I, I get a smile on my face when I say this, you know, to this day, not one person in the history of mankind has ever biologically changed their gender. And so we're, we're talking about something that no one's ever accomplished. And yet um, we're, we're saying that they have, you know, they're identifying as though they have. The fact of the matter is that... Um, they have changed their morphology, their bodies, their structure. Nothing changes. These are men and who are identifying as women. In fact, you know, if, if you boil it down where they say they're transgender women, well, that right there tells you that they're not biological women. And so right. that alone should put them in a category where they should not be in a swimming pool. I've had uh, people contact me who are bicyclists and they're, they're competing against men who identify as women on bicycles. They can't compete. It's just not a level playing field. So my feeling is these individuals who want to compete in these sports, they should put all the transgenders in a sporting event by themselves and leave the sure. wonderful women alone and well. let them compete and develop. You know, the, many of these women have worked for years training for this stuff and then you get somebody who identifies as a woman who actually in the case of leah thomas was competing in men's swimming and doing extremely well was one of the top swimmers in in men's decides to identify as a female and jumps in the pool with the women i mean it's crazy this is the kind of stuff that uh makes you insane i believe Uh, you know my guest say won't hire. Let me grab a call. I think Charlie, who's listening, or Charles, who's listening in Fremont, California, is kind of reechoing what you said about having separate, um, you know, events, if you will. Charles, good afternoon. Hi, thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. I think yeah, yeah. You know, if we can have a men a men's team, we can have a women's team, and you know, if people have gender dysphoria, make us make a, a division, a team for every kind of gender dysphoria there is, and. Uh, Maybe that'll work. You know, I think, uh, what did St. Thomas Aquinas said? He said, seldom affirm, never deny outright, and always right. make distinctions. So if these gender dysphoria people are making distinctions, then maybe perhaps we could follow Aquinas' uh, advice and make the appropriate distinctions to go along to accommodate appropriately. Hello. Hey, Charles, thanks. Appreciate the insights. Uh, Walt, your thoughts on that? I mean, should we just have men swim with men, women with women? Or do we need a third uh, group, as as Charlie point as Charles points out? Also, you know, then we need separate dressing rooms, a third set of bathrooms. Um, you know, where where does yeah. it end, and what are your thoughts on it? I mean, should we do that? I mean, maybe that's the solution: keeps everybody safe uh, and happy. I, or maybe we just say, "Hey, you're a man, or you're a woman." I I don't know how you read it. 
Well, I read it like uh, Jesus does. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ made man and woman. There isn't anything else. You know, when the sperm hit the egg and conception occurred, it is unchangeable. It's immutable. Uh, nothing from the time of conception can change. So what we're dealing with is people who actually change their persona and not their gender. So there's a great deal of difference. I mean, my therapist at Stanford University, when I was going through this, said, you're changing your persona. I don't. This idea that people change their gender came in later because it's more uh, woke. They can do things with it and allow them to jump in the pool. But the fact of the matter is, you know, if a, a man wants to dress up like a woman, let him compete with the men and vice versa. But you know, we don't talk about the girls who switch to being a man and try to jump in the swimming pool. I saw a study on this. They can't compete there either. So even the gals who have gender dysphoria or identify as a man jump in the pool with the men, and they're at a disadvantage too. So at some point we have to get uh, reality and understand that, you know, if a gal wants to identify as a man but she's a biological woman, then she has to swim with the women. And same with the men. Let them swim with the men. Let them play golf with the men. Let them compete in all these different sports. Look at the weightlifter, I think, in New Zealand. You know, um, he's a man jumped into the women's weightlifting, and, you know, he can pump like 300 more pounds than any woman has ever done or something. I mean, this is where you step back and go, this is insane. It shouldn't be happening. Let's get our heads back together and understand that God made man and woman there isn't a third gender. There isn't a third anything. These individuals, for whatever reason, where they have, you know, some sort of disorder, which many of them do, and some right. of them just really like the idea of dressing, and they they somehow think it's really appropriate to wear a dress or for the gals that um, are, you know, want to identify as a man. Many of them have been uh, in right. the, the groups that I've worked with over the last many years, 60 to 70 percent of these individuals who identify but in opposite gender were sexually abused. And so, you know, having a guy put on a dress does not uh, fulfill any kind of treatment modality for somebody who's been sexually or physically abused as children. And that's really the problem. We're not we're not focused on providing effective, sound therapeutic treatment for these individuals who are suffering. We're we're just ruining women's sports and men's sports. My guest today is Walt Heyer. He has been abused as a child, uh, went through a gender transition later in life, uh, operated and conducted himself as a woman for about eight years, is now a beautiful ministry. He's transitioned back. And uh, if you need help, if this hits ho- close to home, if you even just want to learn more, you want to read his story, you can go to waltheyer.com or sexchangeregret.com. Great resources, great insight. When I come back, I'll grab... A few more of your calls. We'll pray the chapel at the top of the hour. But if you want to get in on the conversation now, here's the number for you. It's 888-914-9149. You can call right now. I'll be right back. Catholic Order of Foresters is proud to sponsor the Relevant Radio Studio line. For information about employment opportunities and flexible premium life insurance plans, visit relevantradio.com slash forester. The Chaplet of Divine Mercy begins soon on Relevant Radio. And you are welcome to join me for that. It's one of the highlights of my day. If you have a personal struggle, trial, need, facing a difficult time, and you just want some extra prayer, 
uh, feel free to, to give us a call. The number for the chapel, of course, 888-914-9149, the same number to get in and talk to me anytime. And it's always good to pray with you. It's good to talk with you. Talking today, if you're just joining me with a man named Walt Heyer, uh, he grew up always wanting to be a girl, but it was a result of abuse. He was abused as a young man, um, transitioned years later, identified as a woman, lived his life as a woman for about eight years, and never dealt with the deep wounds or the pains of um, why he made that transition. He transitioned back, and now he's mentoring others, and he's helping others. And you can check him out, walthire.com, sexchangeregret.com. Check out his books. They're well. We're talking about a story about um, a man who identified as a woman from the University of Pennsylvania uh, was just killing it in these swim races against women. I mean, he's a, a dominant swimmer. And physiologically, of course, he's dominant, right? So, of course, he's going to win. He goes up a, a, in a race uh, against a girl from Yale, and he gets beat. But it really wasn't a girl. The person that beat him was another man who thought he was a woman, a woman named Isaac Hennig. I know it can sound confusing. I, but look, it's not just athletics. And I think there's an injustice there, especially when it comes to awards and scholarships and things along those lines. It's just not fair for men to to compete against women. It's just not. I, I couldn't see them boxing. I couldn't see them doing all sorts of things. It's just not, it's just not fair, right? Um, it, just in the news the other day, um, in the Senate, uh, Alabama Republican uh, Tom Cotton introduced a bill that would uh, prohibit federal officials from transferring imprisoned men who claim to be women uh, to women's prisons. And I, I had said that. You know, imagine you're going to do life in a male prison. You're there for whatever your horrible crime is, right? It's going to be rough. You'll never be around the the, the you know the beauty, the, the gentleness, the, all the things that a woman can bring. Why not say you're transgender and, and live in a totally different world, right? Um, so a lot of guys were doing that. California, we saw a lot of guys saying, hey, you know, I'm, I identify as a woman. I shouldn't be in a male prison. I want to be in the women. And then women are being raped and they're being abused in those prisons. So it's been going on in California. The result has been, you know, I think very predictable. Real women have become pregnant in prison. There have been rapes, a whole litany of others. I won't go into all the details. But uh, Senator Cotton brings, uh, I just, I think it brings some common sense to what should already be a common sense, right? Why do we have to write this into law? And I'm glad he's doing it. Don't get me wrong. But who in their right mind would think it was a good idea to take a, a male prisoner and put him in a female prison? I mean, does that make any sense? I mean, just come on. Let's just be objective about this. This is the problem I have. It's it just, it lacks reason. It just doesn't make any, just on the surface, it's not a complex issue. I mean, you might have a problem with immigration. You might, you know, some of these issues are more nuanced and there's pros and there's cons and it could be gun control. It could be all these different. This is just on the very surface, black and white. It's, I don't think it'd be clearer. My guest today, Walt Heyer. Walt, I, I want your take on that as well. I'm sure you're probably aware of the fact that men are now going to female prisons. I'm assuming women might be able to say the same thing. Y your thoughts on that? And, and I'm assuming, uh, I, who knows, I could be wrong. I mean, Senator Cotton's uh, bill, maybe it won't get passed. What, what are your thoughts? I can't imagine it not being passed. But, um, you know, I, I can't imagine a more difficult environment for a person who's um, struggling with their gender or has had uh, issues with identifying one way or the other than a prison. I mean, that is a rough institution at its absolute best, let alone, um, I, this is, I'm, I'm glad he's doing it. I mean, it's something that needs yeah. to happen, but I'm with you. I'm not sure why we even have to discuss this. It, it should be, pretty automatic men go where the men are and women go 
where the women are, and if you identify as one or the other, you still have to go with your biology. Let's let's get back to DNA and biological structure and forget all this um, unfortunate identifying in different genders when, in fact, you haven't ever changed your gender anyway. So the, the harm that's done not just to the individual who may be struggling, uh, but to the people who aren't struggling and wondering, why is this individual in my side of the prison? And so um, I, it's it's dangerous on all levels. It doesn't help the individual. Uh, they I can tell you mm-hmm. the, the thing that I love the most when I was out there uh, identifying as a woman, I appreciated the most the people who confronted me about yeah. my nonsense. Really? And at the, absolutely. The people yeah. who got in my face and told me that you are not what you think you are, uh, I'll tell you, at the, at the moment they said it, I didn't appreciate it, but it wasn't but 10 or 15 minutes later, mm-hmm. I realized they're right. And they probably did more to help me detransition by telling me the truth than they ever did by affirming me. The affirming part is more destructive psychologically and emotionally than anything you can do. I think people just standing up and saying, you know, mm-hmm. I, I really love you, I care about you, but guess what? Right. You're not a woman. And man, well, I, those are the people I go back to today and say thank you. Well, what brought you back? I mean, what was it? I know eight years you lived as, you identified as a woman. Um, what was it? I mean, was there a lack of peace? I mean, what finally made you realize, look, this was a mistake and this is not this is not how God created me? It was a series of events. I was studying psychology at uh, UC Santa Cruz. I was going to become a therapist. And I started looking uh, into the books about uh, helping people who are struggling with these things. And I realized the books at the time had numerous studies about these individuals having many psychological and emotional disorders and that they they really didn't have, quote, gender dysphoria. They had what they called general dysphoria. And general dysphoria deals with the all the underlying things like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, dissociative disorder, body dysmorphia. So what, what I realized was that n- no one needs to have their body rearranged. Right. What they really need is a good psychological clinician that'll sit down and look at and, and ask them these simple questions. What happened to you that caused you to not like who you are? And when you begin to explore why they felt that way, you find out they were abused or they were alcoholic, they were drug addict, their parent. We, there's all these, there's probably three or 400 different reasons. And so when I realized that, I realized, you know, I'm not a woman. When I saw in the books, you're not a woman, I go, why am I doing this? if the surgery didn't work. And I went back to my doctor who did the surgery and I asked him, did you change me into a woman? He said, well, not really. Well, why wow. did you change the documents? Wow. Well, that's what we do. So there's no, there's no biological change. It's just a paperwork. That's why I wrote the book paper genders because they're just genders are paper. They're not real. And, wow. and that's why that book's been a great worldwide seller. And so you know, when, when I began to realize this, I said, I can't continue living a lie. I have to be truthful. And, you know, and I got on my knees to the Lord and said, you know, forgive me for the sin that I've done, thinking that I was greater than you and that I, the one, uh, can make gender when you're the only one that makes gender. I mean, I had to sit back and go, you know, I was wrong. And I admitted I was wrong. And that's at the right. point where the Lord came and yeah. redeemed and restored my life. 
Walt, you're wonderful. Thank you for your time. Check him out at sexchangeregret.com.